This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. Happy first Sunday of Lent. I hope your Lenten journey is going well, and I thank you for sticking with me during this Lenten season, as many do choose to not consume any kind of what people call social media during Lent. And it's understandable that they would choose to do so. But it's my goal here during Lent to provide edifying material on the weekend, especially edifying material. And so today, we're going to continue what we started last Sunday, which is Monsignor Ronald Knox talking about the Sermon on the Mount. We began with just the first sentence of the Sermon on the Mount and his analysis of it. And today, we'll go over the next few portions of the Sermon on the Mount. So here we're going to talk about today whether or not we are liars and whether or not we are just consumed by anger. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, this is important. So, here is Monsignor Ronald Knox on those questions. Are we liars? You have heard that it was said to them of old, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, thou shalt perform thy oaths to the Lord. But I say to you not to swear at all, but let your speech be, Yea, yea, no, no. See Matthew chapter 5, verses 33, 34, and 37. I suppose if I were to write on the above text an article which dealt with profane swearing and pointed out how the use of strong language by Christians is in itself something wrong, and besides that gives quite exaggerated scandal to those who hear us, your readers would take it all quite quietly. They would not point out that, after all, this is not what our Lord is talking about. If in these words of the text he had meant to talk to us about the sins of the tongue, he would have taken a quite different starting point. He would have told us, you have heard that it was said of them of old, Cursed be he that curseth father or mother. But I say to you, curse not at all. But you see, he is not talking about cursing. He is talking about swearing. And it is only by a modern abuse of language that we talk about swearing when we mean cursing. To swear means to take an oath that you will do such and such a thing, or that something you are asserting is true. Profane language does not come into the question at all. What then you say are the Quakers right? Does our Lord mean that taking an oath in a court of law or taking an oath of allegiance to the king is a wicked thing to do? Once again, you are on the wrong track. The Sermon on the Mount is not meant to tie us up with fresh obligations, fresh prohibitions. It is meant to inspire us with a principle of active charity, which ought to make obligations and prohibitions unnecessary to us, which ought to make us do things through love for God instead of abstaining from doing them through fear of his judgments. Our speech is to be yea, yea, no, no. Why? Not because that which is over and above is evil. He does not say that. He says that which is over and above these is of evil. The necessity for using an oath to make men believe our statements or trust our promises arises out of is due to a wrong attitude on our part altogether. We are quite at liberty to take oaths when the law or some other important business requires it. But the taking of an oath ought to be a humiliating business to us, a dreadful second best. It ought to make us sweat with pity for our fellow men, that the law should not be able to trust a man to tell the truth when his neighbor's life or liberty depends upon it, unless he is made to kiss the Bible first. What oaths mean, when you face the facts squarely, is this, that we men lie to one another, so cheat one another so, twist the truth so much that when we talk to one another, that it is assumed we shall tell lies, unless we bind ourselves on pain of the divine vengeance to be as good as our word. What a satire it is on our human weakness. When we say casually in conversation, I swear I won't tell a soul. You swear you won't tell a soul. What need to swear? If you say, I will not tell a soul, surely that would be enough. Surely a Christian's word should be as good as his bond. 
It isn't true that all oaths are unnecessary, but it would be perfectly true that all oaths ought to be unnecessary. Would be if it wasn't that there are so many third-rate articles going about in the world. Think of a soldier having to take an oath of allegiance to the king. What a paradox that a man who is just embracing the most gallant of all professions should have to pass his word that he will not betray his country. For the man who really means to be a soldier, really wants to be a soldier, the taking of an oath is a mere empty formality. It is not the oath but loyalty to his country that will make him ready to die in her service. It is because there are, or might be, third-rate articles aspiring to the soldier's profession that the oath has to be exacted. The priest who is worth anything obeys his bishop, not because he has taken an oath to obey him, but because he knows that, in the last resort, the will of his superior is the voice of God for him. The witness who is worth anything tells the truth, not because he has sworn to tell the truth, but because he is an honest man's solicitude to see that justice is done. I expect some of you will remember a picture in Punch, I think it was, of a young and not well-instructed bridegroom, being asked by the clergyman, Will thou take this woman to beat to wife? And he replies, Akuma purpose. To the lover, these illegal solemnities seem superfluous. Why take an oath to realize the wish of his heart? There are special instances. What is the quality underlying them all, which our Lord says every disciple of the Sermon on the Mount ought to possess, so as to escape from legal obligation into the inner freedom of the Spirit? It has two names. In matters of assertion, we call it sincerity. In matters of attention, we call it fidelity. Perjury was forbidden by the law of our so-called elder brothers. And the teachers, their teachers, were very fertile in distinctions on the subject of perjury. Which sort of oaths were really binding on conscience, and under how grave obligation they bound you? And the answer of the Sermon on the Mount is, Yes, but why should anyone want to commit perjury? Why should anybody be concerned to find out whether the oath he has taken is a binding oath or not? If you make a statement, it ought naturally to be a true statement, whether you swear to it or not. If you declare the intention of doing a thing then as a matter of course, you will do the thing, whether you have bound your conscience by oaths or not. The disciple of the Sermon on the Mount will, because he loves God, have a natural sincerity about him which will never trouble itself about perjury, because it will shrink from the mere suggestion of untruth. That's very easily said. It isn't nearly so easily done. We Englishmen always say we tell the truth, but you know that's the worst lie of the lot. There's the propaganda instinct in all of us, whatever our nationality. How often do you describe an incident without putting some of your own color into the telling of it? How often do you make an excuse, even a quite genuine excuse, without running it for some more than it's worth? How many people can do a stroke of business without a little bluffing? All men are liars. I'm afraid that's still true. And the women, well, you know, I think they do their share of it too. Only we men lie mostly from selfishness, and women mostly from unselfishness, so they have the better of us there. How many people we know who wouldn't tell a downright lie? How few people we know, even among very pious people, who always tell the truth? Life is complicated, and we work-a-day Christians mustn't expect too much of ourselves. But this I do say, that in proportion as a Christian lives in a recollected life and tries to make our Lord his model, he will attain a simplicity and lucidity of character, which will have less and less need for untruth. He will live, not according to the caprice of the moment, but according to a plan. There will be less selfishness in his calculations, less partiality in his judgments. He will know himself better because his examination of conscience will be more careful and more determined. His conversation will be more with Our Lady and the saints, less with his exacting, distracting fellow citizens in this world below. He will know the truth, and the truth will make him free. Insofar as you approach that ideal, you will win a respect among your neighbors that is not easily won. You will not be conscious of that respect. You will not want to be conscious of it. But men will take your yea for yea, 
your no for no, without questioning your facts, without exacting guarantees of your fidelity. The world with all its faults knows an honest man. Are we angry? You have heard that it was said of, to them of old, Thou shalt not kill, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was at every moment of his life fully conscious that he was the Son of God, and that he was, besides a mediator appointed between God and men, saw fit to order the circumstances of his earthly life, that they should recall, now in this detail, now in that, the history of his chosen people, our so-called elder brothers. For he was, as St. Paul tells us, that true need of Abraham to which the world looked forward, and the fortunes of that particular group, as we read of them in the Old Testament, were only the world's preparation for his coming. Out of Egypt the people of Israel came, with Moses at their head, to claim a promised inheritance. Out of Egypt our Lord came in his mother's arms to establish his everlasting reign in the hearts of men. For forty years Israel tempted God in the wilderness. In the same wilderness for forty days our Lord was tempted by the devil. It was on a mountain top, the meeting place of earth with heaven, that the first imperfect law was delivered to Moses. It was on a mountaintop, too, that our Lord delivered to his apostles those laws of perfection which we still call the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think, he said, that I have come to destroy the law. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Hitherto, St. Paul tells us again, the world has been like a schoolboy who is kept under tutors and governors because he has not yet come of age. The schoolboy lives by rules, which he is invited to obey for fear of consequences. It is not asked of him that they should intelligently grasp or enthusiastically embrace the spirit of these rules which are laid down for him, enough that he should obey. Such was the principle of the Mosaic Law. It has threatened punishments. It has held out promises of reward, but it did not explain itself or seek to commend itself. Justice was satisfied if its precepts were observed to the letter. Now all that is to be changed. When our Lord Jesus Christ came on earth, mankind came of age. We Christians are called, not to the bondage of desk and schoolroom, but to the glorious liberty of the Son and the Father's house. The law by which we are to live must be written, not on hard tablets of stone, external to ourselves, rigid, lifeless, but in our own hearts, plastic to its influence and responsive to its spirit. It is for the schoolboy to be summoned by bells, governed in his daily conduct by notices posted on a board. The man must live by principles to which the mind lends its appreciation, the heart its homage. The fulfillment of the law does not mean, then, that the old law is to be expanded by a series of condensels as lifeless, as uninspiring as the rest. It does not mean more commandments. It means commandments of a different kind. And when our Lord goes on to say, Unless your justice abound more than that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter to the kingdom of heaven. He does not mean that we are going to keep more rules than the scribes and Pharisees did. He means that whereas their tradition and their training led them to carry out God's commandments in the letter, it is for us to carry them out in the Spirit. It is for us to catch from the lips of our Master those eternal principles of which the old law was only a rough, inadequate expression, to make those principles our own and to serve God, not by obeying them simply, but by living them. At that point, it is open to any unfriendly critic of the Catholic Church to say, Yes, but why should you set yourself up as a superior to our elder brothers? You Catholics with your elaborate codex of canon law, your vast tomes of moral theology, your interminable rubrics of the Mass, surely you are in servitude to the letter every bit as much as they were before Christ came. Much liberty the gospel has brought you. Don't you spend labor and ink over determining exactly how great a sum constitutes a serious theft, exactly how much food a man may be allowed to eat on a fast day? Well, I am afraid I have not time to enter into an apologetic argument here. For our present purpose, it is enough to point out that moral theology is only necessary because Christians are not all good Christians. 
If they were, it would become a merely theoretical science. If we are followers of Christ, we Christians live not by laws, but by the spirit of his gospel. We do not spend our time calculating exactly how late we can be for Mass without missing it, or exactly how far we can go in saying unpleasant things about our neighbors without being guilty of the sin of detraction. Rather, the love of Christ constrains us. We would not, so far as in us lies, miss a single second of that half hour in which he gives us audience. Our study is not to do our neighbor all the harm we can, but how to find in him, in spite of any natural dislike, the image of the Savior who died for him and for us. Because the Catholic Church is all-inclusive, unites so many different races, temperaments, stages of development, it is necessary for her to have codes and to legislate over details. But if you really want to find a good, practical textbook of moral theology for Catholics, I can tell you of a quite short one and quite cheap one. It is called The Imitation of Christ. Our Lord chose stupid people for his apostles, and he knew that his followers in later ages would be stupid people, like you and me. He was not content, therefore, to break out into short enigmatic utterances and leave us to interpret them for ourselves. He would give us instances, illustrations to show us the bearing of the principles which he was laying down. So after telling us that our justice must abound more than the justice of the scribes and Pharisees, he gives us 28 verses of explanation as to how we are to make sure of this. And those 28 verses are arranged in an ordered plan. They're divided into six separate sections. And at the beginning of each, he says, You have heard that it was said of them of old, giving a quotation from the Old Testament. Then he adds, But I say to you, and gives us his own version of the same law, a version suited to the needs of those who want to be real Christians. He takes some old refrain from the law of Moses and sets it anew, writing celestial harmonies for it. Let us examine another of these emphatic utterances of Christ this month. Our reflections will be very seasonable while Lent is yet with us. You have heard that it is said to them of old, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? That sounds, doesn't it, as if our Lord was fulminating from the mountain of the Beatitudes a law far more strict and far more searching than any precept of the Decalogue. I can still remember how uncomfortable it used to make me when I was small to be told, Whoever shall say, Thou fool, thou shalt be in danger of hellfire. Because I'm afraid I did sometimes call my brother a fool, and this text seemed to say that he'd done something quite as bad as if I had ended him. Now, we really do understand our Lord is saying that under the new dispensation, every sin will be a mortal sin. If so, surely the gospel will bring no liberty to human conscience. Rather, the Christian life will be a life of servile fear for all of us. But you see... Our Lord only puts it in these legal terms as a kind of satire in the legalistic way in which our elder brothers regarded their religion, on the legalistic way in which you and I sometimes regard our religion, when we forget what master it is we serve. The point is not that an angry word is as culpable as a mortal blow, but that the source of either is a disposition of the human heart, and such a disposition as ought not be found at all in the Christian heart, or if it finds a harbor there, should be harbored only for a moment. It is not always wrong to end someone. It is not wrong to end someone in a war or in self-defense, but it is always wrong to be angry, wrong especially to feel angry against a human being. And the real reason why Christians ought not to commit the that sin of ending someone is not the fact that that sin is against the Ten Commandments. Such motives as that ought to lie in the far background, the very horizon of their thoughts. The reason why Christians ought not to commit that sin is that that sin arises out of anger. And anger itself is something altogether out of the picture. We really mean to be the disciples of the Sermon on the Mount. What did the priest say to us on Ash Wednesday? Remember, O man, that thou art dust and wilt return to dust. We have to be reminded of that. Almighty God does not have to be reminded of anything. 
He remembers, says King David, that we are dust. He remembers, therefore, the frailty of our nature, and he knows that we shall be angry in spite of ourselves, even with our Lord's own words ringing in our ears to prevent us. So he goes on to tell us the next best thing. If sudden irritation does get the better of us for a moment, and we say something we regret afterwards, we are to make it right as soon as possible. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and remember that your brother has some cause of offense against you, run back and be reconciled to him before you offer your gift. Do we remember that as often as we should, when we bring to the altar of the Christian sacrifice the poor gift of our unworthy devotion? We are careful to make our peace with God by confession. We are equally careful to make sure that we are at peace with our fellow men. That does not mean we should always be going about apologizing to one another. A person who is always apologizing is very often a nuisance. But tell me, when you've had words with somebody, isn't there usually a chance, before the next time you go to confession, of saying some kind word, doing some trifling service, which will obliterate the memory of your quarrel without the need of referring to it? That is what Jesus Christ wants you to do. Agree with thy adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him. You start a quarrel. How do you know that the end, your end will not intervene before it can be put right? And that means purgatory. Thou shalt not go out from thence until thou hast paid the last mite. And our Lord does not want us to have any purgatory. He wants us to come straight to him. He wants us to be his children. And how can we be his children if we are not like our father? An important reminder, I think, in this time, especially for those of us who spend a lot of time paying attention to the evil things going on in the church. It's why I try to remind people to pray for all of those that we talk about in our news stories. Because we can't have anger. As it's, it's right, it, it is correct, Scripture tells us, to have righteous indignation about things. But to have that turn into the shadow of malice, basically, that is wrong. And if we live with that kind of anger in our hearts at all times, does that not turn us into liars? Curious what you think about this. So let me know in the comments, please. Like and subscribe if you haven't. It does help. So to sharing this on social media, that helps too. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.